Welcome to the What A Pain podcast. I'm Glenn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. And today we're coming to you actually from our own homes for a change, not traveling around the country. So Conrad, how are things? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah. Good, thanks. I know you're going to rip me. Go on. Yeah, absolutely. 2-0. Two 2-0. Nil. Two nil. Uh, yeah, uh, just it's got to happen in the real season. I know. I know. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Um, it always just counts. For listen- just for the listeners, it was 2-0 for Manchester United against Arsenal. Yeah. But anyway, that's not what we're here for today. Um, today, we're, we are going to actually try something a little bit different than we've done in podcasts up to this point, we're going to have a show about a patient's experience with pain. A patient known to us called Sophie Fatter, who has had a very difficult journey with pain, has very kindly agreed to be interviewed by us to share her experiences and her thoughts. She's also a young lady who's written a book about her experiences of pain and offering advice. Um, She's 18 years old, so she wrote this book as a teenager, and it's very much aimed at other teenagers. I think listening to the patient experience can be a very powerful tool, both for us as healthcare professionals to learn from, but also for patients and those around them to know that they're not alone, but also to learn some strategies from those who've been through it. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Conrad. It's something we use in our clinical practice. Um, We've done videos and other sort of media, which we use then to give to other patients. And it's been an incredibly useful thing. They often comment on how interesting but also uplifting they find these stories and how it gives them hope that the sorts of treatments that they're going to receive are going to be successful for them. So just to make all of you listening out there aware, we have actually already recorded the interview with Sophie um, and it's a it's a fascinating interview, um, quite emotional, um, but also it, it had a lot of content because Sophie has such a story to tell. So we've actually divided it up into two episodes. We'll do the first one now and then we'll create another podcast to play the content of the second interview. So knowing what she says in the interview, I just want to um, clarify a couple of things which will make it easier for you to listen. During the interview, Sophie mentions about having an illness alongside having a chronic pain. And although she obviously had those two things together, she sees a very clear delineation between the illness that she has and then the pain that she had while she had the illness, but also that then lasted afterwards that she needed to rehabilitate from. Um, But when she talks about the illness, what she's talking about is having had a very, very rare reaction to a vaccination that she was given at around the age of 12 years old, which gave her an autoimmune response and for which she became very unwell afterwards and was seen and treated by a lot of healthcare professionals, including receiving infusions of immunoglobulins. And so when she talks about needles and when she talks about having infusions, that's what she's referring to. But the main emphasis that we talked about and the main emphasis that we're trying to get across is actually her journey with pain and how she rehabilitated from that. Sophie also talks about CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, a type of talking therapy that addresses thoughts, feelings and behaviour. Towards the end of this podcast, we would like to discuss together, Clint and I, some of the issues that have come up. But I think it's time to start. Yes, let's go and meet Sophie. Well, we're very lucky this afternoon to be joined by Sophie Fate, who is a patient we've been getting to know through our service, um, who is a young patient, ex-patient, if you like, who unfortunately has been through a very difficult pain journey herself. Um, but she's also recently written a book called Ankites, which is very much aimed at 
teenagers. It's from a teenager to a teenager to try and talk about her journey through pain and express ways that that can potentially help them. But Sophie's very kindly joined us today to maybe talk a little bit through her journey in pain and maybe end up talking a little bit about the book. So Sophie, thank you for coming and it's very lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And uh, we're all virtual today, which is the first time we've actually recorded this podcast virtual. So we're all in different parts of, well, different countries as well. So hopefully things will go well. But what we like to do, Sophie, is just start off by getting to know you a little bit before we get into your pain journey. So I'd just like to know, where's your favorite place on earth and why? I think my favorite place on earth would have to be this one church in North Lebanon. I, that's where I'm from, actually. I went there with my grandmother once and my mother. And the time when I was there, I just remember feeling so incredibly grateful for my whole journey. And at this time, I had gotten through everything. So I have a very fond memory there. That's why it's my favorite place. And was it something specific about the church that made you think in that way or, or brought those feelings home to you? Well, my grandmother is very religious, and when I was at a very low point in my illness, she made a promise to God that if I ever got better, she would bring me back there to that church. And when I did, I went with her. So that was very special for both of us. Sounds an amazing place. Sophie, what is your favorite film and why? I think The the Lion King. I'm a huge fan of Elton John. And the, all the soundtrack in The Lion King is by Elton John. It's also a rendition of Shakespeare's Hamlet, which I think is pretty cool. I love Eng English literature, so that's, that's really great as well. And then we'd also like to know something that irritates you uh, and why. Well, it's actually really funny that you asked that, but somebody just asked me that exact same question recently. Uh, do you know the book A Streetcar Named Desire? Well, in that book, the main character, Blanche, she says that deliberate cruelty is not forgivable. And there's a lot of things I don't agree with her on, but I agree with that. I think that to be deliberately unkind is unfor unforgivable. And that's something that really irritates me. And how do you deal with that then if you come across it? I think rising above it, sometimes putting the person who's being unkind in their place. But I'm a firm believer believer in killing somebody with kindness. That's a lovely sentiment to live your life by. Thank you. So we'd like to understand your pain journey a little bit better. And my understanding is that your pain started when you were 12 years old. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So can you tell us a little bit more about your life before your pain started? Yes. Well, before my pain started, I was constantly active. I was in my school's debate team and my school's hockey team. I was doing tennis and I was training for this huge bike race, which was 109 kilometers in South Africa. So I was training every weekend for that race. I was, wow. I was up and running and I was doing everything that I could possibly do. So once my pain began, it was very difficult for me to be held back. Can you remember it starting and what actually happened? Yes. So my illness and uh, by association, my pain started with a vaccine injury. It's, uh, I was given the HPV vaccine at my school, which contains Gardasil. And on the rare occasion, this triggers an autoimmune response, which is what I had. So it started with me getting sick and 
I would miss three weeks of school because I had a terrible flu and a high fever. And then I would return to school for about five days, maybe a week, just to become sick again and be sent home. I was, that's when my pain would had started. And I had never been prone to headaches before in my entire life. And all of a sudden I was having to deal with constant daily migraines. I really didn't know how to handle it. Is that where your pain started? Yes. With headaches? It started with headaches and it gradually just got kept getting worse. Yeah. In, in, in what way did it keep getting worse? Well, at the beginning, it would be a bad migraine in the middle of one day. And then it became a couple migraines per week. And slowly, I got to the point where once my illness became full time, I was in constant pain. Hmm. And did your pain spread as well? It's my pain was connected to my entire body. So whenever any whenever I would feel anything, no matter what it was, if it was a phone vibration, or if it was uh, an itch, anything around me, I would feel it in my head. I would feel it above my eyes or on my in my brain. Yeah. And what else made your pain worse? Well, uh, quite a lot. I couldn't take any bright lights. I couldn't take any loud noises. I, uh, well, at this point, uh, what's important to understand is that during my illness, I was completely bed bound. I had to remain in a dark room. Mm. I couldn't lift my head. And on particularly bad days, I could barely move my hands or even my feet. Even the slightest movement would make my head shiver. And so that any movement made my, my pain much worse at this time. And you talk about your illness and your pain being together. Did you reach a point where the illness as such was getting better, but the pain persisted or did it, did they carry on in tandem together? They carried on together for quite a while until eventually, and I actually don't know what did it, my illness left. I went through several rounds of treatment when I was in New York, and I don't know if it was a combination of all of them together, but suddenly my illness went away, but it, I, we actually hadn't realized that at the time because all of my symptoms still remained. I was still completely bed bound, and I was still having to deal with these constant migraines because my brain was still inflamed and my nerves were still damaged. And what sort of time frame are we talking about that this was happening to you over? So I received the vaccine uh, when I was 12. And around the time when I turned, I, around a couple months later, I fainted at school and I was sent home. And that's when my true, what I like to call my true illness started, where I was completely bed bound and everything just escalated. And... This was, this was early, early February when that happened. And in the middle of summer is when I was checked into my center for my rehabilitation. And so at what point, um, just so we have an idea, the, the, the sort of illness that you describe, at what point did that leave you as you describe it? It left me a few weeks before I checked into the rehabilitation center, but we're actually not sure when. Okay. So you'd had the illness for, sounds like about three or four months and the 
and, and yeah. but the pain obviously persisted beyond that. Yeah, I had the illness from well from the vaccine, which was in October, until until June. And once the illness had left you, what were you left with in terms of physical symptoms? Well, I was still could I was still completely bed bound, and that's when I started rehab, uh, well, physical therapy and occupational therapy. But it was very slow. Before I went to my rehabilitation center, I was just at the point where I could stand up and I could slowly hold on to something or and I could walk to something. I was in so much pain that I could only do that for a few seconds. Can you describe the pain to us? How did you experience that pain? I would feel it. I would feel it mostly in the front of my head, but it would feel like it went much deeper. It's like as if everything from the center of my brain to my eyes were connected on strings and the strings would tug at each other and they would stretch and they would vibrate. I, I can't Gosh. even describe it. it. It sounds so strange even to myself. And at other times it would, at other times my pain would change. Sometimes my head would just be pounding, like I guess a normal headache. But it was mostly, mostly I would feel like something was either trying to break out near where my eyes were, or something was trying to poke its way inside where my eyes were. And did you, did you have a, a specific image of what was trying to break out or what was trying to break in, as it were? It, I, it's actually in my book. I always imagined some sort of sea urchin creature. I imagined that it would be purple. I'm not even sure, too sure why, but I've realized that helping that visualizing my pain does really help with coping and that entire coping process because it helps it seem less scary, more manageable. Okay, that's interesting. And it sounds like a really, really scary creature. <laughs> it's not too scary once you've learned how to cope with it. And if you, you know, experiencing that pain on a daily basis, did you have any periods where the pain went away? Or did you just find it was there all the time at different levels? Well, it was just, it is there all the time at different levels, even even now, but it it's crazy how easy your body can adapt. For patients with chronic pain, the pain is always there. And the way that I feel is, I feel like the pain is always in the plant to deal with it for so long that it's just become a part of the way that my body works. Patients we see have often had multiple scans, um, often at multiple times as well. Um, they've often had multiple blood tests and other tests, and yet very often nothing is found or nothing that can explain the extent of the pain. And that's what's happened to you as well. It's frustrating. It's, it's very frustrating. It's, it was very, I remember my, during my first my first appointments at when I got, sorry, I remember when I was first checked into hospitals, we were doing all of the rounds of tests, spinal taps and MRIs and x-rays. My mother thinks that was the scariest week when they didn't know what I had. And although my family was relieved when they came back and said they hadn't found anything, it's horrible that I, I almost wish that they had, because if they had found something, it would have meant that they'd be able to fix it. The fact that my tests came back 
well, I had autoimmune, so my test came back with high levels of antibodies in my system, but nothing else. It just made me feel like there was something wrong with me and I, I had nothing to show for it. And during that initial time when you were very unwell, what impact did it have on your life outside of the physical symptoms you're experiencing? I think it mostly had an impact on how I grew up. I left school when I was 12 and I turned 13 when I was sick. And most of my friends were actually older than me. They all turned 14 by the time that I got back or they were turning 14 by the time I got back. So I felt like I had missed this pinnacle moment when everybody became uh, turned from being a child into a teenager, this moment where they every all the girls at my school, I went to an all girls school and all the girls at my school started putting on makeup and becoming interested in boys and they all downloaded Snapchat and Instagram and having missed all this time, I felt very much like a child compared to them. So Sophie, you saw lots of different health professionals, medical doctors, physios, occupational therapists, etc. And for a long time, really nothing helped. How did that affect you? I think that mainly it made me begin to lose confidence in myself. And I felt even though that there was nothing that I could really do, and I, f I knew that I was trying as hard as I possibly could, even I couldn't do much, but I was trying and doing as much as I could to try and be healthy, I guess. I felt like I was letting my family down and my doctors down. We'd tried several rounds of different treatments. Um, and I remember this one time after my second round of IVIG, it was extremely long and extremely painful. And after it was over, I, I went back and my doctor told my family that he had expected more. And I think that really hit us all hard because it was like he had, he had expected more from me as if I could have done more. Okay, that sounds really, really difficult because it sounds like you took it very personally. The fact that, that treatments didn't work was down to you? Yes, well, I'm sure a lot of chronic pain patients can relate to that, especially because their pain is so specific to them and it's something only them, only they have experienced, only they know how bad it can get. And sometimes, at, for, at least in my experience, I don't even know how to describe it sometimes. So without any tangible proof, without any treatments that have been, uh, that have worked well, it's like they're just trying to grasp at something that's not there. Okay. And how did it affect your motivation? I think it definitely affected my hope that things would get better sooner rather than later. Uh, for me, I, I actually, it took me a while to register the fact that I was actually sick. I never thought of myself as somebody who would go through an experience like this. And even up until the point where I was completely bedbound and in a wheelchair, I, I still didn't think of myself as sick. 
it was only as we were going through more and more of these experiences where doctors were telling us that they didn't have many options or they didn't have many treatments in mind that I began to register this might be more permanent than I thought. You've explained how you were very active before and that yes. you weren't active at all, I guess, kind of when, when you were in pain. So your self-image was a certain way. And then how did you adapt to a new reality? How did you kind of integrate that new reality into the new Sophie, as it were? Well, as I said, it's almost I like I didn't believe it for a very long time. And I didn't think of myself as sick. It was like I had a flu, even though months and months had gone by. I didn't think of this as me. And I still remember how in my dreams, I was always walking or running. And then around the time when we lost this one doctor who told us he expected more and there was nothing more that he could do. I started to see myself as sick and I started to, that's when I started to have dreams about in my dreams, I would be in a wheelchair. And that was very difficult for me because it seemed a bit like my subconscious mind had almost registered that this was my new reality. Gosh, that's quite striking that your dreams actually changed. Yeah, it took a while, but they did. Now they're back to normal, but it, it took a while for them to adjust. I think it, it's the same for everybody as well. A lot of patients would also have trouble adjusting to this new reality. Sophie, you don't have to answer this question, but can you tell us a little bit more about the medical trauma that you experienced? Yes, I can. I think now I've gotten to a point where I have accepted them as memories in the past. I Most of them occurred in New York. Well, actually, nearly all of them occurred in New York during uh, the time when I was receiving my IVIG treat treatments. And one of the nights in particular was extremely traumatic for me. I, it was my first round of, of the treatment and it had only been three days. I was still at home actually. My immune system was so weak that they didn't want me staying in the hospital. I was staying at home and going to the hospital each day. And um, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and I had lost my breath and I couldn't breathe at all. And I'd never, even though I'd experienced a lot of pain and I still went on to experience a lot of pain throughout my whole journey, I'd never experienced more pain than I had on that one night. Um, we, my parents called the paramedics to pick me up and they carried me out of the bed and they put me in this ambulance and everything was just so hazy and it was just an awful night and I had never wished that badly that everything would just stop. That was a, a night that haunted me for a very, very long time because I never ever wanted to be in that same position 
they told us I had a reaction to the treatment. My immune system was so weak that every medication they were giving me, even if there was a 1%, a 2% chance of you having a bad side effect, I was always in that 1% or 2%. I had, I also ha had bad memories from when I took one medication called uh, amitriptyline and it made me hallucinate and it made me very paranoid. I saw bad things happening to people that I cared about. I'd never experienced something like that before. I was particularly scared another night when I was also hallucinating that the bed had turned vertically on the wall. And at this point, I was having these severe body jerks. That's how they describe them. After I started having those uh, body, these body jerks where my limbs would just flail about uncontrollably and it would hurt my head excruciatingly each time it would hurt my whole body. And as that was happening to my, my legs and my back and my arms, I was hallucinating that the bed was vertical and I was no longer on the, I was no longer lying flat. I was going to fall off the bed. And I remember being very scared. So these, these little memories, sorry, these things scared me. Of course, of course, that sounds like an absolutely horrendous experience. And Sophie, how did this affect those around you, your family, your friends? Uh, they put on a good face for me. They put on a really good face for me. And I think I did the same for them. Um, my mom was very brave and my father was too, but it's obviously very difficult. My mom, she sat with me because I could barely watch TV during most of uh, my time since the lights would hurt my head so much. My mom sat with me and she read me all the Harry Potter books and all the Land of Stories series. She is one of the strongest people I've ever met and I've never seen her so hopeless during some of those moments, but she never showed that to me, ever. Did you notice, you know, was it your perception that they were putting on a brave face and you could see that there was something behind that? No, I did pick up on it. I can tell. They, they say that a mother always knows. Well, I think a daughter always knows as well. And I could tell that my mom was in a lot of pain watching me be in pain. And how did that make you feel? Was there a sort of knock-on effect from that? It's difficult because I, I'd wanted to, sh it's when you're a chronic pain patient or when you have, when you're in pain, you want to show somebody the level that you're at. You want to give them proof and show them, this is what I'm feeling right now. Take this and treat me. And my mother would always say to me, I wish you could give me your pain. I wish I could take it away but I never wanted her to feel that. There was always, at the same time though, there was this one part of me who wanted to show or let somebody else feel my pain for just a second so that they could understand and they could help me figure out what I had and what to do next. And so do you think it changed your relationship 
with your parents? I think we all became much closer. My brother was always there for me as well, my younger brother, and that was that was very difficult for me to process actually because I'd always loved taking care of him. He was I used to pretend that he was my child and I would love teaching him and I would love of uh, just have it dragging him along and giving him my own little school lessons and everything. And suddenly he was the one taking care of me and he was feeding me with a spoon and he was comforting me. And we were all sort of in this together. I didn't, I wanted it to just be me and I wanted to tell them that they should continue and I can do this on my own no matter how long it takes. But I was glad to have them by my side. I think we, We've all changed a lot since that experience, but we've all, we all understand each other on a much, much deeper level now. And do you think you're all stronger as a family for that? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think we all, um, during that time, we all really talked and shared and how much we loved each other and how much we wanted to be there for each other. And after I got better, that didn't go away. I still tell my brother that I love him so much every time I, I end a phone call with him. And that's something that didn't happen before I was sick. And how old's your little brother now? He's 14. How does a 14 year old take that? No, he's very, very sweet. He's, he was my little cheerleader when I was sick, but of course that was very hard for him. Sophie, that's a really touching story about your little brother and seems like a really good point at which to end the first part of the interview. Um, we're going to come back in a little while and talk again about your rehabilitation and how that helped you to recover in terms of getting back to a more normal day-to-day -day life, despite the fact that you're still living with pain. So that was part one of our interview with Sophie. And I think that there's so much to discuss after that, that we thought it would be good to have a, a break and maybe reflect on a few things Sophie talked about. And we learned quite a bit about her background, how what she calls her illness and chronic pain started, the very, very difficult journey and interaction with healthcare professionals, which led to what she calls medical traumas and the impact on her and on her family. Just to remind you all that her book is called And Kites, A-N-D Kites, and it's free to read. And I've left a link to the book in the podcast notes. Clint, Sophie talks about the fact that she's had lots of scans and tests, but apart from her autoimmune condition, right at the beginning, nothing was found. And you've been in that position many times. You've delivered that message to parents and to families. How do people tend to respond? Well, I think, Conrad, they, they tend to respond in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, it, you know, there are, there's the group of patients who, you know, they want something, you know, they want a diagnosis, they want something to pin their hats on. And that for them might be an important part of their recovery. And so it can come as a huge disappointment, you know, to think that they've had all these things done, there are still symptoms there, and they don't find anything. But Equally, there's the other group of patients who are fundamentally very relieved by that, but still confused. So you sort of have to play it a little bit, you know, judging, reading the room, I suppose, would be the, uh, the common phrase for it. 
and try and work out with the family how they're accepting this news and then trying to frame it in a way that is best for them and to understand that. And it, it, it's a really difficult skill. And, uh, you know, I think all of us as healthcare professionals would admit we don't get it right first time every time. But I think the important thing is to stay clear in your message, is to obviously remain incredibly empathetic, sympathetic while you're doing it, but be as clear and as precise in your explanation as you can and try and always frame it in a positive way. So one of the, I think one of the golden rules is, and it, and it, and it is, if, you know, if you've done a battery of tests and that you can find nothing fundamentally wrong with the patient, it's good news. You know, as much as it's difficult to have the symptoms and as much as it's difficult to, you know, not necessarily have a, a precise explanation, the fact that you haven't got a really bad illness or some illness that might be very detrimental to you or have a poor outcome is good news. Because that's what Sophie says at one point, does isn't it? She actually says that in one way she would have been relieved if something had been found in where you're saying that it is better if, that nothing is found. Well, I think so. I mean, I think in the short term, having a fixed defined explanation is is good. You know, you can see why a patient might think that. But actually, if that fixed defined explanation is something with a, uh, you know, an illness or a, or, a, or a condition that gives you, you know, very significant morbidity and mortality into the future, that's not really a good outcome. However nice it might feel to think that I've got an explanation for my pain. So, you know, it, it obviously takes a bit of working at and for some patients, the idea that you can have symptoms which don't necessarily conform to a normal illness pattern or have an explanation behind them is a very difficult concept for them to deal with. Hmm. In the longer term, being able to take them on that journey and helping them realize this and helping them discover that there is a life that they can lead despite the presence of their symptoms or the fact that their symptoms will get better in a different way than they're expecting is actually part of our job and that's what we do you know and we as healthcare professionals need to have the the time the patience the resource and the skills and the knowledge to work through that with our patients I, I, you know yeah. it sounds very easy when i say all of this but it's certainly not easy and there will be a, as we know a group of patients who just find it impossible to get their head around it yeah and there is of course some evidence that families uh, patients who in the long term, believe in a medical solution to chronic pain tend to have slightly worse outcomes. Well, I think, yes. And, and I think anecdotally, if you ask any of us who work in the profession, that's what we see. At one point, Sophie said that the doctor had said that he had expected more of a particular treatment. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting comment because it, it depends a little bit in the context at which it was said. Because on the face, and I think the way Sophie took it, it was almost, you know, she took it as a, a criticism, which I, 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 you know, I struggle to believe that the healthcare professional actually meant it in that way. So what it really does for us as healthcare professionals is make us or should make us very aware that the way we frame uh, our comments to patients needs to be quite correct. And we probably need to always check in with what they're thinking about what we've said afterwards, because certainly implying that a patient should do more for their own recovery mm. is, is, is a negative thing. And, you know, we see that with quite a lot of our patients who come with this idea that, you know, everything's in their head or they, there's no reason why they should be unwell. And so therefore just get up and get on with it. And we know that that is counterproductive. But one of the other things I was very struck with 
by uh, Sophie's story to us is the impact on the family. Absolutely. And that's very common, of course. And we just see the patients and sometimes we see two parents. Most often, actually, we only see one parent um, coming to clinic. Unfortunately, we'd like to see um, more people coming to clinic, uh, potentially both two parents, possibly even other family members who are interested, who are involved in the whole process. But one of the really interesting things that Sophie mentioned was that she feels that her parents were aware of the fact that she's distressed, but also that she was very aware of the fact that her parents were very distressed, even though they were trying to hide it. And she had this line that was quite nice, actually. She said, a daughter knows. And that's very common. And it's almost like a dance between parents and children around each other. And they don't want to distress each other. They don't want to be a burden to the other person. So oh no, I was just wondering, you know, if you, I absolutely agree. We see this very commonly. So when you have your children in your therapy sessions, how and, and the family as well, how do you sort of start trying to address that? Yeah, well, the thing is that for some families, this is actually okay. They really don't want to change anything. But in other families, it feels very, very, very uncomfortable, both for the child as well as for the parent sometimes. And then what I tend to do is I talk to parents and child individually on their own first, and I really normalize to the child in particular the distress that parents feel about the fact that they're in pain and, and about the fact that they can't do things. And in fact, it would be very strange if parents weren't distressed in many ways, of course. And then I'll put them together in a room and we discuss it more openly. And I might even give them a bit of homework to do. For example, go to a coffee shop once a week and, and, and have a bit of a chat together and try to listen to each other. But in general, I think that in most cases, it's often better for these issues to be more out in the open so the children and parents are able to communicate better about it. So, Conrad, I think at this point, we'll finish off this episode. We've got a part two interview with Sophie, which I hope everyone will want to tune in and listen to, which again, um, as we know, we've pre-recorded this. So it's it's absolutely fascinating, uh, the second podcast. But um, for now, everybody, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you in part two.